Now, for the last uh, 20, what is it, four weeks? This is, this is week number 24. For the last 23 weeks, we have been walking slowly through the book of Matthew. Now, usually uh, I race through books. Um, I, I went through the 50 chapters of Genesis in like 12 or 13 weeks. But we're taking a long time in the book of Matthew because our church is in the process of reformation, reforming ourselves, restarting, relaunching ourselves, re-identifying ourselves. And part of the process of doing all of that means we want to have a really clear picture with regard to who our king is, who we are following. And as you go through the passages that we have been through in Matthew, a very clear picture emerges. It emerges of Jesus being the king above all kings, better than all other kings. Jesus the teacher, better than Moses. Jesus the priest, better than the high priests of old. Jesus is better than any of these other things, except in none of these ways is he the person that we thought we wanted for our leader. We tend to want kings who are on our side, but Jesus consistently shows up to be the king for the outsiders, the king for the oppressed, the king for the downtrodden, and he doesn't establish any sort of kingdom to give them power. He doesn't give power to the powerless. Instead, he encourages them in the midst of their powerlessness, and he says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the one who consistently flips the script in the favor of the people you and I might want to avoid, in the favor of our enemies, in the favor of the losers. And so the question we've been faced with the entire time in the book of Matthew is this, am I willing to follow a king like that? Am I willing to follow a king who doesn't take my side? but instead takes my enemy's side and tells me I'm supposed to love them. Can I follow a king like that? Well, that's the big question. And over the past couple of weeks, hopefully you've seen some glimpses of who Jesus is that make you willing to follow a king like that, make you long for a relationship with a king like that. But uh, the past couple of weeks have been really scary for us. Because for the last two weeks, we've seen Jesus say some very harsh things against religious people. Where Jesus said, in one group, he said, that religious group of people were doing some religious things, and they weren't letting the new people coming in come in. They weren't letting the outsiders come in. And Jesus got so upset with them that he actually formed a whip, and he turned over all of their tables and yelled at them and stuff. It's the only time in the scriptures that we see Jesus getting really angry, and he did because it was insiders keeping the outsiders outside. And then last week, We saw Jesus again getting really, really critical of the religious leaders of his day, pronouncing judgment on those who were fake and fruitless. But today, we begin to turn a corner. Jesus isn't going to suddenly get nicer. You're not going to see him getting nicer. In fact, he's kind of on a roll right now. He's going to get even more scary in a chapter yet to come. But for today... Matthew doesn't want to show us angry Jesus. Today, Matthew wants to show us one of the most important things you need to know about Jesus. And it is that no one understands the Bible like Jesus does.
Matthew is going to tell us three little stories. One of them is actually two stories kind of put together. But Matthew is going to tell us these three little stories to make this point that Jesus knows the Bible better than you. And Jesus knows the Bible better than anyone else. And Jesus has a level of authority when it comes to Scripture that surpasses all other authorities. So we're going to jump in. We're going to start in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 15. And we're going to see Jesus get faced with three tests. And then at the end, he responds with a test of his own. It's pretty cool. But here we go. We pick it up in verse 15. It says, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. To remind you, there are a number of religious people in Jesus' day. The Pharisees are one group of people. The Pharisees believed that if the Israelites lived according to God's law, God would send a military leader to defeat Rome and let the Israelites have their nation again. So the Pharisees were the nationalistic group of Jewish people at the time based on if we follow God's law better, we will get our nation back. There were other groups we're going to see in just a little bit, but here's the Pharisees first. They go out to trap Jesus in his words. Verse 16, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Here's another group of people. The Herodians are the people who aligned themselves with Herod. Now, Herod is an interesting fellow. Herod is the guy who, when Jesus was born, Herod declared that he wanted to have all the babies killed. Remember that story from your Christmas Sunday school classes? Uh, Herod was the guy who said that all the babies under two years old should be killed. And so he's this bad dude. He died in 4 BC. And so that's one of the reasons why we know that Jesus was born before the zero year. There was never a zero year. There was just a one and then a one. But anyway, uh, we know that Herod died around 4 BC, but Herod was his title, not his name. Herod was the title for the king in Jerusalem established by the Romans. Herod the Great, it was his name originally, and then it became the title after that, but Herod the Great just sort of weaseled his way into being liked by the Roman emperor. And then he got his position in Judea. And then he built this big temple, and a lot of people liked the temple, and so they liked Herod-ish. But he was a fake king established by Rome. And so here's the point. The Herodians are people who have aligned themselves with the fake king from Rome. So here are the Pharisees. They're the nationalistic group of people who want the nation of Israel to have its nation back. And they want to follow God's law to make that happen. Now you have the Herodians who have aligned themselves with the government, aligned themselves with the Roman government and the fake king who's now in Israel. And so these are two widely different people. But they have come together to see if they can trick Jesus into saying the wrong thing. And let's see what they say to him. The Herodians come along. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Hint, hint, we're the Pharisees and you've ignored us. Here are the Herodians and you've ignored them. And so we know that you pay no attention to us. So here you go. You're going to have to pay attention to us now. Listen to our question. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? 
You look at the footnote, and you'll notice that the translators of the NIV have given us just a little bit of historical information there. It says that this was a special tax that was levied on the subject peoples, not on Roman citizens. Roman citizens don't have to pay this tax. This is the imperial tax. It is only a tax on the people who are the subjects, the subjugated ones to Rome, they have to pay the tax. And so now these people are asking Jesus, do we have to pay the tax? Here's, the why, it's a, here's why it's a trick. Because the Pharisees, they want their Messiah to say, don't pay that tax. You don't need to give that secular government of Rome any more money. The Herodians, they want Jesus to say, oh no, we will be saved by the Romans as we continue to live underneath their authority. So yes, we need to pay the tax. The Herodians will say, we should pay the tax. The Pharisees would say, no Messiah that I would ever follow would tell us to pay the tax. So what is Jesus going to do? Is Jesus going to side with the Pharisees, and he hasn't sided with them at one point at all so far, or is he going to side with the Herodians? If he sides with the Pharisees, then the Pharisees will be kind of okay with that, I guess. But if he sides with the Herodians, the people are going to get upset with Jesus because they want someone to tell them what they want to hear. The normal, everyday, average, ordinary person in Jesus' day, they want their leader to tell them what they want to hear. And what they want to hear is, no, you don't have to pay your taxes to Rome. Of course, that's what we all want to hear. Every one of us wants to hear the leader say, you're the exception. You're the one who doesn't need to pay the tax. I'm going to tax everybody else, but not you. We all want a leader like that, right? And so these guys are looking at Jesus. Will he be the king that we want him to be? What is Jesus going to say? But Jesus, verse 18, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, I love, by the way, that you cannot trick Jesus that he knows exactly what people are thinking and rolls with it. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites! Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. And to God... What is God's? This is the thing. In this moment, Jesus reveals that he is brilliant. The one thing that he can do, the one thing that he can do that completely bypasses both sides of the trap question, the one thing he can do is to say, who owns the money? Who owns the money? Whose name is on it? Whose face is on it? Whose inscription is on it? Who owns this money? Well, you look at the money, it's got Caesar's face on it. And so Jesus says, it's his money, just give it back to him. You don't need it. Now, see, that's fascinating because if George Washington were still alive and we were holding uh, George Washington in our hands and someone said, give it back to George Washington, someone might be feeling weird about why is George Washington. And so our government actually has a law that says you can't have a living person on currency. You can't do that. You can't have a currency that has a living person on it. You have to wait until they're dead because we don't want anyone to, to claim it's theirs. But Caesar... He definitely wanted everybody to know it was his money. It was his money. You just used it for a period of time. And so Jesus says, just tell me whose money it is. 
Well, the, it belongs to Caesar. It's, it's his face on it. But then Jesus does the absolute most brilliant thing in the section. And you didn't even pick up on it because you don't speak Greek. But the Greek behind what he just said, I mean, we read it, it says, whose image is on this coin? The Greek word for image is the word icon. Now, this is interesting. 50 years ago, no one knew what an icon was, right? But now, every one of you has in your pocket something with far too many icons on it. And you have absolutely no idea what half of those icons mean. You're scrolling through your app drawer, and you're like, I don't even remember why I installed this one. And so you have to tap on it just to find out what it is, and then you get freaked out like, I don't want that on my phone, and so then you have to go through the rigmarole of uninstalling that thing. All because you tapped on the icon. And here's the thing. The icon you don't even care about. What you care about is the thing underneath the icon. You tap the icon, and then you get the thing the icon promised you. The icon is a promise to get the thing that is behind it, that is underneath it. And Jesus uses that word for this coin. He says, whose icon is on the coin? And of course, they don't, they don't know anything about computers. They don't know anything back then. But they did know something about iconography and icons. And you know what they knew about it? They knew that in their culture, a king would always put his image on something to remind the people of who was really in charge. But Jesus knew something extra. See, Jesus had a copy of the book of Genesis in a synagogue in Nazareth where he grew up. You also have a copy of the book of Genesis probably hiding underneath an icon. But Jesus knew at the synagogue there was a copy of Genesis. And at some point in time, he had read it. And he had read that in the beginning, God created male and female in his image. And so Jesus says, whose image is on the coin? Oh, it's Caesar. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And give to God what is God's. And so, of course, the question is, where has God placed his image? Us. We're the walking icons. We're the walking images. We're, people tap us. They should get God. People... people open us up, they should find God. They, they, they cut us deeply and what bleeds out should be God. We're, we're the images of God. We're the representatives of God. So Jesus says, where do you find God's image? What, wherever you find God's image, go ahead and give that back to him. Let's just be clear about it. Jesus has said, God owns you. God owns you. Why are you asking me such a stupid question about taxes? Caesar owns the money. Give it back to him. Who cares? The real question is, what are you doing with your life? Because God owns you. That's a big, that's a big question. Now, I have just kind of explained the, the nature of the question and the answer but you'll notice that Matthew doesn't spend nearly as much time on that story as I just did. Because Matthew's point is not to teach you about paying taxes. And Matthew's point is not to teach you about Roman money. 
And Matthew's point is not to remind you about your relationship with God as the image of God, the image bearer of God. That's not Matthew's point. Do you know what Matthew's point is? Look at the next verse and you'll see. Matthew's point is in verse 22. When the people heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Matthew tells us the story because he wants you and me to get a picture of Jesus being amazing. You ask Jesus a question, and he will not only give you the smartest answer that has ever been given, he will take it one step farther to say something that blows your mind, that now puts a new responsibility and a new awareness in your heart and in your mind, and that makes Jesus amazing. Sure, the lesson is cool, but Jesus is the real important thing. Matthew wants us to see Jesus as the amazing one who shuts people up. And then they walk away. But the story's not over because Matthew is now going to tell us two more stories in the same basic vein. Let's pick it up again. Verse 23. Uh, That same day, the Sadducees, and now we get a third group of people. The Pharisees and the Herodians already came up. Now here's the Sadducees. And Matthew tells us who the Sadducees are. The Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. This is the idea behind the Sadducees. They believed that there was literally nothing after death. When you're dead, you're dead. There's no such thing as spirit. There's no such thing as afterlife. That's why they're so sad, you see. Because they got nothing to look forward to. There's no hope. And so the Sadducees, they lived their lives very similar to the Herodians. They lived their lives with, a, with kind of a perspective that said, we are going to maximize the moment. That's what we're going to do. We're going to maximize the moment. If that means placating the Romans, we're going to placate the Romans. If that means doing something against the Romans, we're going to do that. We're just going to maximize the moment because all we have is right now. The Sadducees believed there was no resurrection. So they come up to Jesus with a doctrine question. And they say, teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. That's mostly accurate. They're not 100% accurate. It's mostly accurate there. But, you know, so clearly they're setting up a religious question that is asked by religious people for religious purposes. That's what they want to know. Now, Here it is, verse 25. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now, by the way, if you are brother number seven and six of your brothers have married this woman and ended up dead, I'm just saying maybe you reconsider. But nonetheless, this is a hypothetical story. They're trying to make a point. Now then, they say, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Okay, so they're asking a doctrinal question. Now, they don't believe that there is any resurrection, so they think they've come up with one of these stumping questions that actually communicates to Jesus that this whole doctrine of the resurrection is stupid because we've come up with a counterexample, okay? Because this doesn't make sense. Our scenario doesn't make sense. Therefore, the whole idea of resurrection doesn't make sense. But Jesus, maybe you can come up with a good answer. And of course, wouldn't you know, Jesus does. He comes up with an amazing answer. See what he says here next, verse 29. Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. I love it when Jesus gives us a short sentence 
that just effectively smacks someone in the head. I just, there's something about that that just I love when Jesus says, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. But now he's going to actually explain what he means. He's going to start by talking about the power of God, and then he's going to talk about scripture, how they misunderstand scripture. But first, the power of God. Read what he has to say here in verse 30. It says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, Jesus is not saying, hear me clearly, Jesus is not saying that one of these days, humans will become angels. That is not what Jesus is saying. Some people have drawn that conclusion from this single solitary verse alone. Nothing else in the New Testament or the rest of Scripture indicates or teaches that. And so sometimes people take verses out of context and make big things out of them. This is one of those times people have sometimes done that. But no, Jesus is not saying that human beings become angels. Nor is he saying that current angels used to be human beings. What he's saying is there is one thing that is true about angels that will be true about people. The one thing that is true about angels is they don't have sex. There's no sexuality in heaven right now. There's no sexuality going there. And so there's no marriage. There's no under, there might be an understanding of gender because, you know, Michael has a masculine name. Gabriel has a masculine name. Maybe there's an understanding of gender. The pronouns in the Bible are frequently male when referring to the angels. But maybe there's an understanding of gender there. But there's definitely no understanding of any sort of procreation or sexual partnership or marriage or anything like that in heaven. And so Jesus says that is going to be true about humans one of these days. But here's the bigger picture. Jesus isn't just saying that, yes, there is going to be a resurrection. He is saying that God is so powerful that when he does the resurrection, he will also transform us. And we will become something different from humanity. We will become something beyond humanity. We will become something humanity 2.0, humanity bigger, humanity better. We'll become humanity transformed. The Apostle Paul would refer to it in glorious fashion, that we will receive glorious new bodies. And Jesus is saying that God has the power to raise from the dead and transform so that your whole question of marriage is just silly because God's power is far bigger than just bringing you back to life so you can continue on the stuff that you were doing here. God's power is bigger than that. But that's not Jesus' only point. Jesus also wants to emphasize that resurrection is a thing, a real thing. Now, he said that they didn't understand the scriptures. So perhaps we should understand the scriptures. Let's take a look at two Old Testament passages that refer to resurrection. The first one is going to be from Isaiah. It says this, but your dead will live, Lord. So, okay, there you go. Dead people are going to live. That sounds pretty clearly to be talking about resurrection. This is a prophecy about the coming days of God's judgment. And at the end of time, God is going to judge the world. He's going to restore the world to the way it was supposed to be from the beginning. And so this prophecy says, But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. That is a very clear Old Testament prophecy that resurrection is someday promised. 
It is someday going to happen that the people who are in the dirt, the people who have been turned to ash, that somehow God is going to have the power to restore them to life and raise them up. Also Daniel. Take a look at Daniel chapter 12. It says this, At that time, Michael, the great prince, who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Again, there is a prophecy in the Old Testament about a coming resurrection. So the Sadducees were ignoring the prophets. They were only paying attention to Moses. Remember, they quoted, hey, Moses told us this. They were only paying attention to Moses. They were ignoring the prophets. They had the law. They were ignoring the prophets. And Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures. But what I find fascinating is that when Jesus quotes a scripture passage, he does not quote Isaiah 26. And he does not quote Daniel chapter 12. Jesus chooses to quote Exodus 3, 6. This is what Exodus 3, 6 says. Or actually, this is what Jesus says. Excuse me. But about the resurrection for the dead? Let's do the Matthew one first. Yeah. So, but about the resurrection of the dead, Jesus says, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Okay, so now let me show you the Exodus 3, 6 verse where Jesus is quoting it. It says, then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Exodus 3, 6 happens at the burning bush. Moses has walked up to the burning bush. The burning bush is talking to Moses. And these are some of the first words that come out of the burning bush to Moses. These are the words that immediately come before, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. God says to Moses, before anything else, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Here's the thing. Moses lived 600 years after Abraham was dead. So God is saying to Moses, 600 years after Abraham, God is saying to Moses, I am the God of Abraham. Now, of course, you and I know what that means. That means that God is saying there was a dude named Abraham, and he's dead, and he's gone, but I'm still God. And so I'm still the God, even though that guy's gone, right? I mean, that's what, that's what we would understand it to mean. That's probably what Moses understood it to mean. That's probably what everybody understood it to mean. God is just saying, okay, I'm the God who was the God of Abraham while Abraham was alive, and now I'm going to be the God for you, and so I'm just letting you know some of my history, some of the history of your people, and how that all relates. But Jesus does something weird with it. Jesus added a line that is not an exodus. Jesus says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so what Jesus does is he takes the scriptures that talk about resurrection and he bypasses them to make a bigger point, a different point, a better point. See, Jesus' claim is that even though Abraham is dead, God is still the God of the living, and God is the God of Abraham, which means Abraham must still be living. Write it this way. Dead people 
are still alive. This is Jesus speaking, not me. This is Jesus who is saying that Abraham is still alive. He's just not on this earth. He's just not in his physical body. But Abraham is still alive because God says, I'm the God of Abraham, and God is the God of the living, not the dead, so therefore Abraham must still be living. This is the first time that this concept has really shown up anywhere. Because it is Jesus who is taking a question about the resurrection, but he's going one step farther, and he's saying, I'm not even talking about resurrection, I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about the fact that Abraham is conscious right now in some sort of relationship with God. He is right now living. There is no death for the follower of God. Because God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Jesus' claim is going way farther than anyone else. But you know, Matthew's point isn't to tell us this new doctrine about the afterlife. Matthew's point isn't to tell us this new concept of having a conscious existence after you're dead. This is not Matthew's point. Matthew's point is to go through this story so he can get to this next verse, which put it up on the screen, says, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Of course. Because once again, Jesus is taking the scriptures. And he explains the scriptures, but adds something to it. And he understands that Old Testament passage in a way that no one has ever understood it before. And he understands the burning bush moment to be also a moment where we learn of consciousness after death. That is an amazing thing that Jesus has just done. And Matthew wants you to know that Jesus is that amazing. Perhaps if Jesus is that amazing, we might be able to trust his words. Let's see what shows up next. Because we're going to see another test. Verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. They're like, okay, great. Jesus just silenced the Sadducees. We don't like the Sadducees anyway, so let's go back to Jesus and let's get him again. Let's throw another thing at him. The Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Quick question for you. If you consider yourself an expert in something and you ask someone else a question about that thing, do you already know the answer? In fact, they all already knew this answer. The answer that Jesus is about to give is not new information. The answer that Jesus is about to give them is exactly the same answer that other people of his day would have said, okay? So Jesus gets it right. There's a test. There's a quiz. They're asking him this question, and he is going to give the answer, and he is not the first person to give this exact same answer. Let's go ahead and see what he says. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus is not giving anything new. 
The first thing is from Deuteronomy 6.5. Let me show it to you. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Moses wrote that. Deuteronomy. Old, old book. It's been around for a long time. And the people knew that this was the number one command when it came to God. In fact, they quoted this every single time they prayed. This is part of the Jewish prayer known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. This is part of the the ritual prayer that they would pray like every single day multiple times. They all knew this was the number one command when it came to God. Uh, Jesus did a little bit of a trick, though, in finding command number two. Command number two was a little bit new. Everybody knew it. They didn't know it as number two necessarily. Jesus was definitely adding that into the mix, but it's from Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19, verse 18 says this, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. Okay, so God says, love your neighbor as yourself. This is not new information. Everybody knew this was an important thing. It's basically the golden rule written in the Old Testament. Okay, love your neighbor as yourself. Not very new information at all, except Jesus said something that no one else had ever previously said. Verse 40. Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You you picture it, Jesus is saying that the entirety of God's law is like photographs on a wall, but there are only two nails in the wall. One nail says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The other nail says, love your neighbor as yourself. And on those two nails, all of the other photos of all the other laws are dangling. If you remove one of these nails, everything is either going to get lopsided or it's going to fall completely off. If you love God but you don't love your neighbor, all of your understanding of God's law is going to be skewed. If you love your neighbor but you don't love God, all of your understanding of God's law is going to be skewed. If one of those two things is not there, you are going to completely misunderstand everything in God's law. And if you take them both away, it's all going to just fall down. Jesus says it all hangs on these two. He was the first person who ever said that the Old Testament from the law all the way through the prophets depends upon these two things. You have to have them both. Jesus is saying everything God has ever wanted comes back to loving him and loving others. Everything God has ever wanted for the entire world comes back to loving him and loving others. Now, I could just ask you, have you ever known a religious person who seemed to love God more than people? I could ask you, have you ever known a person in this world who seemed to love people more than God? Have you ever known a person who got these things out of balance? Have you ever been a person who got these things out of balances? Jesus' point is that everything God wants in the entire world depends upon the combination of loving God with everything you've got and loving other people as yourself. But of course, Matthew's point isn't to highlight that passage Jesus has been teaching that the entire book of Matthew. 
I mean, he hasn't been teaching it in exactly those words, but he's been teaching basically the same thing the entire book of Matthew. Matthew isn't really trying to emphasize that point. I will in just a few moments, but I want to finish up the passage so that we can clarify what Matthew was trying to do because we read next, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. So the fourth test is Jesus testing them. Uh, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. Of course, that was the Sunday school answer. That's the easy one. Back, you know, for us today, if you're ever in Sunday school and the teacher asks a question and you don't know the answer, or if you're ever in a Bible study and I ask a question, you don't know the answer, or you were sleeping, when you wake up, you just say, Jesus, and you're mostly right. I mean, you're almost always going to be right. But back in their day, the answer was always David. Okay, back in their day, the answer was David. Whose son is Messiah? Uh, David, David, yeah, David, the great king of all. And so they get that one right. Easy, softball question, Jesus just tossed them. Verse 43, he said to them, well, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This whole section is about Jesus proving that he knows every answer better than the experts around him, particularly when those answers relate to the Bible. Jesus knows the Bible better than anyone else. He knows the Bible better than you do. He knows the Bible better than I do. He knows it better than anyone else because he can see things in there that we've never seen before. And this is one of those examples. Do you know Psalm 110, the psalm that Jesus is quoting here, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament for good reason. Because it is a psalm about the Messiah, and Jesus quotes it, and so everyone else who's following Jesus, they're like, well, I want to quote that one too. I want to get that one. I'll put a little bit of it on the screen for you so you can see a little bit of Psalm 110. This is David writing. We know it's David writing because there are these little headings in the Hebrew Scripture that say, of David, a psalm. And so Jesus, when he says David wrote this, Jesus is affirming that we know who the author of the psalms were. We, we know that David wrote the ones that have his heading on top of them. And so Jesus says, we can trust the headings in the Old Testament Psalms. You can trust them. And Jesus says that because he says David wrote this. Jesus also said that David was being carried along by the Holy Spirit, which means that this is actually the Holy Spirit talking through David. So Jesus is confirming that God, the Holy Spirit, has inspired Scripture. That's an important thing, too. But then we look at the actual content of what David says. David says, the Lord says to my Lord. And the first Lord, that's all capitals. That's because in the Hebrew text, that's the name of God, the the burning bush name of God, the YHWH, Yahweh name of God, that we just usually translate into English with the four letters L-O-R-D. But you need to remember, when they're all caps like that, that's God's divine name, the one that means I am, the one that you probably pronounce Yahweh. And so Yahweh, the divine God of the burning bush, says to my Lord, but wait a minute, David is the king at the time. So why would David be referring to someone who's his Lord? Because David's the king, God is here, everybody knows that the king is under God, right? That's what everybody always knows. But David says, no, I've got a Lord also that Yahweh has been talking to. And so now David is talking about Yahweh God, creator of the universe, who is communicating to someone that David considers Lord. 
None of the Pharisees ever picked up on this, and yet it's in black and white. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your, again, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. And then if we skip to verse four, it says this, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So Yahweh the Lord is talking to this other individual that David calls Lord and says, you're going to be the king of everything and you're going to be the priest forever and it's going to be like Melchizedek of old and you don't know the Melchizedek story I know but it's in the book of Genesis and it's just a king that Abraham honored in other words Melchizedek is older better and wiser than Abraham David says the God of the universe is speaking to someone else that David calls Lord and says, that guy is going to be the everlasting king. He's going to be the priest greater than anyone. He's going to be greater than David, and he's going to be greater than Abraham. Jesus is the Messiah. But Jesus says the Messiah is the eternal king and the priest, and he's greater than David, and he's greater than Abraham. Now, Matthew, I mean, that's important, that's good, but Matthew's point isn't to tell you that. Matthew's point is to get you to the last line where it said that all these people were astonished and no one dared to ask him any more questions. So, the reason Matthew put these passages together is that he wants you to have an unwavering trust in what Jesus says. And he wants you to have an unwavering trust in the fact that Jesus understands the Bible better than you do. And Jesus understands the scriptures better than anyone else ever did. And so I want to summarize it for you and bring you to a higher perspective. Give you two things that you can take home with you. Number one is that Jesus is the interpretive lens to all of the Bible. Jesus is the interpretive lens to all the Bible. If you are reading something in the Bible and you think a thought about it and then you look at Jesus and Jesus looks different from your thought, your thought was wrong. Because Jesus is the interpretive lens on the Bible. How does Jesus treat people? How does Jesus talk about people? How does Jesus view religious tradition? How does Jesus view the sacrifices? How does Jesus talk about the government and our relationship to the government? How does Jesus address any of these things? If Jesus doesn't address it, then we have no lens for the Old Testament teaching. But if Jesus does address it, we have a lens through him. And so everything in the Old Testament, literally 100% of the Old Testament, needs to be viewed through the lens of who Jesus is. He is the interpretive lens of the Old Testament. So when he looks at Exodus 3, 6 and says, God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead, that's nothing you're allowed to make up, but it is something he's allowed to make up because for crying out loud, anyone who can predict his own death and resurrection and pull it off is someone that I'm going to pay attention to. And so Jesus is the interpretive lens of the Old Testament. That's what Matthew wants you to get that no one understands the Old Testament like Jesus. But here's the second thing. The second thing is that love 
is the interpretive action. Remember that Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself and literally everything else hangs on it. Here is our problem. We love to get new information. Especially when the new information makes us feel stronger and better about ourselves and gives us more reasons to be accusatory against other people. And so we love to study scriptures and we love to experience things religiously because those things allow us to feel better about ourselves and more harsh against others. We love to get the secret knowledge. We love to get all the things that make us feel more significant and allow us to think of other people as less significant. But Jesus says that everything boils down to loving God and loving others. I want to end my time with you by just sharing a couple little illustrations here. Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario where you live in a house with a person who has an incurable and incredibly contagious skin disease. Maybe it's some type of warts or wounds or something. It's gross. It's incurable. The, the doctors have inspected it. They've looked at it. They all know what it is. They all know they can't change it. And they all know it's incredibly contagious. And you live in that house. But amazingly, you're somehow immune. Amazingly, somehow, you haven't caught the disease. This other person has it. They're in your house. You haven't caught the disease. But you still need to go to work. And so every morning, you wake up and you wash your hands and you put on the cleanest clothes you possibly can. And you leave your house knowing that even though you've done all the work that you can do, you're probably carrying some of the contagion with you. And so you go and you get in your car and you drive to work. But when you get to work, you have made the personal decision because you have recently been reading your Bible and you saw that Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And so you made the decision that you're going to wear latex gloves as long as you're in the office. And you put on some latex gloves when you get out of your car and you walk into the office and you're just going to wear these gloves. And they're annoying. Wearing latex gloves is the worst. That Your hands get all kind of sweaty and, and gross and stuff on the inside. It's, it's weird. Shaking hands with someone is the weird thing because there's that moment where the latex is peeling away from their hands and you hear that kind of sound. It's just gross. You know it's terrible, but it's the least you can do to show love to these other people because you don't want to touch anything with this potential contagion all over you. And your coworkers, they see it and they realize it and they know that you are making sacrifices because you're caring for them. Well, friends, I just want to take a moment to thank you for every single time over the last year and a half you have worn a mask. If you have gotten a vaccine, I want to thank you for getting a vaccine. Because whether you knew it or not, whether that was your reason or not, in some small little way, you have been showing love to people. In some small little way, you have been going through the discomfort and inconvenience, and you've been showing love 
to people around you. And I want to thank you for that. That wasn't, that wasn't easy. This last year, my heart has broken more fully for uh, people than ever before in my life. Um, before the whole pandemic started, I was building a relationship with some African-American pastors in town through a group called the Pastors Alliance. And uh, one point, I'm, I'm the only white guy who's in the room, not, not because they don't allow anyone, just because I, I showed up and I was like, can I observe and learn? And after a, about a year and a half of that, they asked me to pay membership dues because they were, they were treating me as a member. And so this last year, we paid member, so I'm, a, I'm an official member of the Pastors Alliance. But anyway, as I was going through building my relationship with them, uh, one really interesting thing started coming to the surface for me over the last couple of years. One is I was hearing news reports that African-American people were responding to the coronavirus much poorly, much more poorly than the, the general population of the United States. And they were more often to be faced with serious consequences. And I don't, I don't know the details of that. I just wanted to learn. And so I was asking some of my friends how it was affecting them. And Pastor James Foster, he's preached here on this stage. He's lost two siblings to COVID. This last year, two of his siblings died. Uh, Will Fowler, he's the pastor of the church that meets here in the afternoons. Uh, when, when we're done, we move out, they, they come in and they have their worship gatherings here. And, and Will Fowler lost three family members during COVID. And his wife was in the hospital twice with COVID. And I know they don't have great insurance, and so I'm concerned about their financial well-being, but I'm also concerned that he lost three close family members. As I talked to multiple different guys that I was connected with in those various contexts, I I began to realize that 100% of the African-American people that I asked personally knew someone who was dead because of COVID. Every single one of them, either in their family or some close person in their church, every single one of them had experienced it. When I went to the um, Black History Month celebration at Word of Life Fellowship Church, Pastor Shalimar Armstrong is the pastor. When I went to that celebration, I noticed there was a lady whose job it was the entire night for like the two and a half hours of the program. Her job the entire time was to be the first person to grab the microphone away from whoever previously had it and to wipe it completely down with Clorox wipes and then to hand it to the next person. And the entire night, they were sanitizing everything. Everybody was wearing masks. And I had a conversation once with Cordell Kenner and asked him how he was doing with all of this and how his church was doing with all this. And And we got on the subject of vaccines, and I asked him the question. I said, so how do you guys feel about vaccines? And he said that he was personally really hesitant, and that most of the people in his congregation were hesitant, and they were afraid of the vaccine. I mean, they were already afraid of the virus, but uh, they were afraid of the vaccine too. And so at that moment, I made a decision, and I said, okay, if there's a chance, if there's a chance that these friends of mine who have been deeply affected by this are more scared of the vaccine than they are of the thing. And if there's a chance that any one of them might be hesitant to get the vaccine, then I am going to make a commitment. I'm going to get it as soon as I possibly can. Because if I'm going to be in the room with these people every single month for their meetings or any of the other things that we're doing, I want to make sure that if anything, they cannot get it from me. I want to be part of the buffer I want to be part of the buffer. 
I haven't shared this story with, with anyone in the public. I've shared it privately a whole bunch. But, but from my perspective, from my perspective, this whole past year, wearing masks has just been annoying. The vaccine is two shots that take you out for about a day and a half each time. It's annoying. It's bothersome. It's frustrating. It involves getting poked with a needle and all this kind of stuff. And the masks, I'm smelling my own breath. And it's just, ab- and man, the CDC said that we didn't have to wear them a couple weeks ago. And then the Delta variant is like, oh no, we're transmissible too for even vaccinated people. So now I'm wearing masks again. But here's the thing. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these. And so frankly, I'm just at that place where I want to say thank you. Because if you have worn a mask, if you have gotten a vaccine, if you have done anything in this last year to care for the needs of the people around you, bravo. I'm so grateful to know people like you. And I'm so grateful to be a part of a community with people who are saying, yes, I can go ahead and make a small sacrifice to protect people around me. My mom and dad are in their 70s. They had COVID in, sep- in December last year, and they were fine. I, I don't have a uh, worry in, about me in the slightest. G- good health insurance, good health in general. My relatives have all, who have had it have all come through completely unscathed. I'm really not worried. But if there's the slightest way I can love someone else, even this far into the thing, I'm just going to keep doing it. God says this. Jesus says this to you. Love God with everything you are. Love your neighbor neighbor in any way you can. And everything God wants for this world hangs on those things. So as we go into this world this week, we are going to be people who say, no matter what, I'm going to love God with everything I am. And I'm going to love you in every way that I can. And I'm going to trust that everything God wants to happen in this world is going to happen when I'm part of the family that does these two things. All the law and the prophets hang on them. So that's the way I'm going to walk. And I'm glad that you're walking on it with me. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.